0: This is episode 34 of the Spirituality for Normal People podcast. Thanks so much for listening today. My name is Matt Bruff, and I'm a pastor and an author and a podcaster, clearly. Uh, this episode is part three in a three-part series where I've been reading through my book, Let God Be Present. It's a fairly quick read. And so it's been pretty easy to put these things together and put them out for you in this format, so you can just hear the entire book read. So if you haven't heard part one and part two, you can go back a couple of episodes and get those. Uh, also, if you're interested in getting a hard copy of the book, either like an ebook or a paperback, you can do that. Um, the quickest way f- to find it is probably just to head to spiritualityfornormalpeople dot com slash books and you can just find uh, links to uh, this book and also uh, Let God Be God. Uh, But I'm super proud of this book, Let God Be Present, and I think this is really kind of what this podcast is all about. Um, So I share about some of my struggles around seeking out God and do I actually want God in my life and do I actually want to try to figure out how to Uh, encounter God. Um, And uh, I don't think I'm alone in this that, you know, when we really think about it, most of our lives, we're not, we're not always living our lives with reference to where is God showing up. Um, And so we maybe need to open our eyes to that. Uh, But honestly, I don't always want to open my eyes to that. So this book is kind of about that a little bit and about some of that struggle. So I hope you've been enjoying these, uh, these reflections and sort of me reading from the book. So you've got that today. Uh, Next week, I will be back with an interview and we'll be back to the regular interview based podcasts. And I've got some really uh, great people that are going to be on as guests. So you can watch out for those. Uh, The other thing you can do is if you are willing, leave a review for this podcast on iTunes. Right now there's a few reviews and that's fantastic, but um, it'd be wonderful to have a few more. So if you're able to, if you're listening, I find the best way to do that is on uh, a computer. So kind of log into your iTunes account and just simply search for spirituality for normal people it'll come up and then you can click through and you can find the place where you can leave ratings and reviews. Uh, So regardless of what country you're in, you should be able to do that on on iTunes. Um, And that makes a big difference because iTunes is the largest podcasting directory in the world. And there are people who actually find podcasts through it and having reviews there really helps the podcast be visible. So if you can do that, that's a huge, huge help. So uh, just pause the podcast right now And go and do that, and then come back and listen to uh, the rest of it, and listen to the third part of Let God Be Present. Uh, Before I dive into reading this part, or I guess hitting the the buttons that will make my pre-recording go, uh, I also wanted to just say thank you to people who are listening to this podcast and there have been some of you who have left reviews and I really do appreciate that. I'm going to take a moment and a few episodes time to read out some of those reviews on the podcast and just say thank you to the specific people that have done that. Um, but also a big thanks to all the people in all different countries all around the world who are uh, listening, which has just blown me away. Like I love that there are people in uh, the UK and, uh, people listening in Sweden and people listening in Russia and, uh, all over the place. So I will, uh, I think one of these episodes as well, I'll just kind of go through the list of people. And if you're in one of those countries, I'm just, I'm just waving and saying hi to you in that country. Um, I of course appreciate all the listeners in Canada and the United States as well, because there's tons of listeners there too. Um, Feel free as well to reach out to me, uh, send me an email uh, to matt at mattbruff.com and uh, just let me know where you are when you're listening to this, like what country are you in, uh, what are you doing, have you appreciated anything or a particular episode that was meaningful to you. Uh, I just love hearing from listeners and, uh, and people who are reading my books. So yeah, would love to hear from you. But let's uh, move on um, because I think you tuned in today to listen to... Uh, me read from uh, my book. So, here goes. This is part three of Let God Be Present. And part three is called After the Storm, a reflection on Mark chapter 4, verses 36 to 41, and what follows. Section one. Is called More Than the Storms of Life. And this just starts off with a reading from Mark chapter 4, verses 36 to 41. And this is what this whole part is based on. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. Other boats were with him. A great gale arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that the boat was already being swamped. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? He woke up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. Then the wind ceased. And there was a dead calm. He said to them, Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great awe and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is a story about fear and faith. The disciples were on the water in the boat, and there was a great storm. It was big enough that they feared for their lives, and in a panic, they wake Jesus and accuse him of not caring that they are about to perish on the sea. Jesus rebukes the wind, rebukes the waves, and rebukes the disciples. Why are you afraid, he asks. Have you still no faith? This story is most often used as a metaphor for life. We have storms in our lives, and there is no need to be afraid when you have faith in Jesus. Just like with Samuel in part two, there is much more to this story, though, and it has everything to do with the presence of God. In fact, in this story, Jesus is right there with his disciples in the boat, There's just one problem. He's asleep. Section 2, Just as He Was. We read in verse 36 that the disciples took Jesus with them in the boat just as he was. What does that mean? Does it mean Jesus was still wearing the same clothes? Uh, Does it mean he didn't wear a life preserver? Does it mean that they didn't waste any time? Mark is a short gospel. Why include this phrase at all? I think it's included to emphasize that they didn't take a different Jesus. He was about to do something remarkable, but he is still Jesus, the man. He's the teacher and the healer that you've been hearing about. There's nothing up his sleeve. There is no trick to the story about to follow. Section 3. Other boats were with him. Another strange phrase to note in this story is the mention that other boats were with him. This story is not just about the disciples. Here is perhaps a lesson just as important as the idea that Jesus can calm the storms of my life. There are others out in the storm. When the disciples raise their complaint to Jesus about him not caring, it's not just about them. It is also about whether Jesus cares about all the other boats out on the water. We ought to relate to this. Even though a lot of our daily concerns center around ourselves, we don't only ask about where God is in the storms of our personal lives. We also ask whether God cares about the millions dying of cancer. We wonder about God's presence when a natural disaster kills innocent people we ask why god doesn't do something about terrorism domestic domestic violence or the slave trade our storms as a human race are pretty big and we naturally ask does god care those are bigger questions than our own personal storms there were other boats on the water section 4 if you had Real faith. The storm itself is the easy part to fit into our usual metaphor of the storms of life. We can picture what those storms might be, and we've already named some in the section before. You could make all kinds of lists of potential storms, including relationship troubles, stress at work or in school, bullying, substance abuse, or other addictions, and we could go on and on and on. We immediately get the metaphor of the storm, and we understand the fear of the disciples, we can feel equally overwhelmed. I suppose Jesus being asleep portrays the way we sometimes feel. Jesus is supposed to be at the wheel steering us through the storms, but so often it feels as though we have lost our rudder or that no one is in control. The complaint of the disciples fits perfectly. They give voice to exactly how we feel when we are being crushed in the storms of life. God, Jesus, don't you care? is fascinating to me in the way Mark tells this story is that the words afraid and faith only get used after the disciples wake Jesus up. I have continued to point to the fact that the disciples are fearful, but we do not get confirmation of this until Jesus finally gets up and speaks. It is in fact Jesus, not the narrator of the story or the disciples, that first uses the words afraid and faith. And there are several ways we can understand Jesus' words when he says, Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? One possibility is that Jesus is telling them that if they had real faith, they would have just ridden out the storm, trusting that God would see them through. Jesus calming the storm is a sign of what God is capable of. They should have trusted in God's protection because God has complete control. A second possibility is that Jesus is telling them that if they had real faith, they would have prayed for God to calm the storm and God would have done it. Jesus calming the storm is a sign of what any of the disciples, if they had faith, could have done. The prayer offered in faith can move God to miraculous action. But We're going to explore a third possibility. I'm going to do that, starting with this next section. This is section 5, and it's called Muzzle It. When Jesus refers to the fear of the disciples and their lack of faith, he might not be referencing the storm at all. Rather, he might be talking about the calm that follows the storm. Imagine being in the middle of the storm, and you are an accomplished fisherman. You've seen your fair share of storms. You start out doing all the things you know how to do. You struggle against the storm, you bail out water, you act quickly, but ultimately you realize you are stuck out there. You look over and see Jesus, who is by no means a boatman, and he's asleep. How can someone sleep through this? Now, it becomes clear that there's no hope. Certainly, you are afraid of death at sea, but you're more angry that your teacher, the one you gave up fishing for, is asleep. You're now at the moment where he is needed, the moment before it's all over. You're not really expecting him to do anything to keep the boat afloat, but if anyone could prepare you to meet your maker, it would be him. You wake him up with an accusation. Don't you care that we're perishing? And that's where we get this in Mark chapter 4, verse 39. It says, he woke up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. Then the wind ceased and there was a dead calm. A better translation of what Jesus said might be silence, muzzle it. The text tells us that Jesus spoke to the sea, but imagine you're the disciple who woke him up with, Don't you care? And that's when Jesus gets up and shouts out to everyone and everything, Silence, muzzle it! And everyone and everything obeys, everything stops, and there's nothing but calm. I think the calm that followed Jesus' command is far more likely to be the moment of the greatest fear for the disciples. It is a moment that takes your breath away. Section 6. What manner of man is this? He said to them, Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? Mark chapter 4, verse 40. Jesus knows they're afraid, but why are they afraid? And why does Jesus accuse them of having a lack of faith? Well, verse 41 fills us in. It says, and they were filled with great awe and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Great awe in this verse is from the Greek word phobon, and it usually means the outward expression of fear, panic, or flight. It's where we get the word phobia from. In other words, Jesus can see that what they really want to do is run away in panic after what they had just witnessed. It is then that the disciples say to one another, who then is this? Or as the King James Version puts it, which I love the way the King James Version puts this phrase, what manner of man is this? Remember the detail from the beginning? They took him on the boat just as he was. Now they ask, What manner of man is this? In our English Bibles, this sentence gets rendered in such a way that it sounds like Jesus has got them in awe, wondering who he could be. But the Greek can easily be read as them trembling in fear of a man who can wield supernatural powers. What kind of human being can do things like this? And the obvious answer is, a human being can't. Perhaps the disciples are much more afraid of Jesus himself and the calm that he produced. What manner of man is this is a question that is slightly off kilter because Jesus is not simply a human being. He is not just a man. He is God with them. This story is all about the presence of God. The disciples brought him along Just as he was, they just didn't know who he really was. And so the third possibility for understanding Jesus' words about fear and faith is this. If you had real faith, you would recognize that the incredible miracle that just took place was from God, and God is right there with you. Jesus calming the storm is a sign of what God does all the time at will. It is not a sign of what God will do only if we have enough faith or what God is capable of doing to protect us every time we're in trouble. The calming of the storm is a miracle of power that points to the power of Jesus, who is God. We either fear him as a human being, or trust him as God. Section 7. Changed by the calm. We tend to universalize this story. Right, The storm represents our struggles and our trials, and we just have to have faith, as though this was a simple answer to all the world's problems. What if instead we only universalized the calm after the storm and did so to remind ourselves of the source of the miraculous, the source of healing, reconciliation, comfort, peace of every good and transforming gift? There are remarkably good things that happen in our lives. Sometimes they are striking, like a friend going into remission and it baffles the doctors. Sometimes we call those things miracles but less and less do we see them connected to God. And even less than that, will we tell people that it is God who worked the miracle? Only in the rarest of cases will we let the miracle have a lasting, positive effect on our faith in God. That is because, as we will see, in the calm that follows a storm, there is still an undercurrent of fear. It's not just a fear of Jesus that the disciples had, but a fear of what would be next with this Jesus. In the middle of the storm, they had jobs to do. They had to work hard. When there was no hope of survival, they could at least cry out, don't you care, Jesus? But when Jesus turned things around, there is only the unknown after that. We might think we fear the storm, but life is full of lots of storms. Some are overwhelming, but lots of them are just draining. It's the calm that God provides afterwards that can really transform us. And for lots of us, that is the real fear. That God who is in the midst of the storm and who brings the ensuing calm will change us. We're afraid of that because quite often we don't really want to be changed. Section 8. Not wanting change. We've all known people, or have at least heard stories about people who have had a brush with death and then had their life transformed. You know, the one about the guy who has a heart attack, survives, and then vows to live differently afterward. I don't know if these kinds of stories are inspirational. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. I don't know if this scenario is instructive either. It could be, I suppose. What I do know is that most of us don't actually want to go through this kind of journey. We don't want to live through a storm even if we know we will be changed for better on the other side. Maybe I'm off base here, but most of the time I don't really want to be different than I am. I don't want God to go to work on me using circumstances or miracles to push me to live differently. I'm somewhat content. Not everything is perfect. Life could be better, yes, but it's pretty good. And the things I want to be different in life are not really about me. I'd like a little more money, less car repairs to do, more vacations and more time with my family. A whole new life transformed by God through a storm and an ensuing calm? I'm not so sure about that. I suppose what I'm spiraling around here is this. I want God to show up when I need him. I'm just like the disciples in the boat. When the storm is strongest... I want God's presence. It doesn't take too long after the storm calms down for me to not really want God around anymore. I suppose if I'm honest, I have a healthy fear of the storm, but an unhealthy fear of God. I'm fine when God calms the storms around me. I'm thankful for it. It is God's presence in the following stillness that scares me. What will God do now? And what will God ask me to do? When we've moved beyond survival, suddenly we may be confronted with God's call to service and God's penchant for personal transformation. I'd rather just go back to fishing on the lake. But Jesus saves us for something. He doesn't leave us as merely saved from our storms or sins to live as we did before. He plants purpose in us and changes us more into his likeness. This is scary because we are being changed into his likeness. This is scary because if we are being changed into his likeness, then we are walking a path of service and suffering as he did. I may be overthinking this here, but I believe all of these thoughts are in play. If I'm honest, quite often I don't want a wholly other life. Defined by the one who is wholly other. Left to my own devices, I would much rather have a life defined by the successes and trappings of our world. Yes, save me from the storm, Jesus, but only so that I can go to Starbucks and have my $7 coffee and at the end of a long day settle in for some Netflix binge-watching. Our usual response to the calm after the storm is not a particularly faithful response. It is to get my life back rather than give my life to. So how does the person of faith respond to the calm after the storm? Section 9. Allow yourself to be with Jesus. The person who has no faith will panic and worry about the miraculous calm and what may happen next. The person of faith will trust that God has provided the calm and God will do the changing, so they will do their best to cooperate with what God has done and what God is going to do. The story that follows this one in Mark illustrates this very point. Jesus goes into a Gentile region. There is a man there that is kept chained up in a graveyard and he has an unclean spirit. His chains can't hold him. He continually breaks them. It's a pretty creepy scene. When he sees Jesus, he runs to him and shouts, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. That's Mark chapter 5, verse 7. Notice that the unclean spirit in the man, or perhaps even the man himself, recognizes Jesus as the Son of God. The disciples just asked, What manner of man is this? After an incredible miracle, this demon-possessed madman has no problem pinpointing Jesus' true identity. I find it interesting that the hand-picked disciples, the good upstanding fishermen, the faithful religious ones, who have experienced the miraculous, have trouble working out who Jesus is, but not the irreligious demon-possessed man chained up in a graveyard. Jesus goes right to the one everyone would avoid, and somehow that one knows him. Jesus ends up healing the man. After being healed, the man starts following Jesus and asks Jesus if he can come with him on the boat just to be with him. Notice what happens to the man. He isn't afraid like the disciples. He is bold enough to follow Jesus. He immediately knows where he wants to be with the one who healed him. He correctly associates his new life with the one who has given it. He is changed, and he embraces it. Jesus says no to the man's request, but tells him instead to go home and tell his friends how much God has done for him. We find out that he did just that, giving all the credit to Jesus. And the text tells us that everyone was amazed. Our experience of Jesus, our encounter with the calm after the storm, God bringing some order into our chaotic lives, Is supposed to be met with the faith that this man displayed, not with the paralyzed fear of the disciples on the boat. A lot of the time we get scared about the calm, about suddenly not having a job to do, about Jesus having given us a beautiful gift, about him changing the circumstances. We get scared because Jesus may be changing us in the process. We get scared because in the end, we don't really want to be changed. Instead, can we be faithful? Can our first response be to desire his presence? Can we follow him and want to be around him? Let's not let the miraculous, when we encounter it, perplex and paralyze us. Instead, let's instantly credit Jesus and connect whatever goodness and transformation we experience with its source, our Lord God, Father, Son, and Spirit, perhaps then we will be moved to go and tell about Jesus and what he has done for us so that all will be amazed. Part four of Let God Be Present, which is a short part, is just called So What Now? And it really only has one section. And that section is called Experiencing God More Consistently. And so here we go. I began in the introduction and the first section, I began by assuring you that this book or this series of talks was not a how-to guide. Perhaps, though you have become a little more aware of some of the times when you close yourself off to the presence of God. You likely have times when you don't think about God's presence, or when you don't want it because God confronts you, challenges you, changes you, or simply doesn't do what you want him to do. But what if you have decided that you do want to experience God more? What if you are ready to accept God on his terms, Maybe you want to trust God to be the one in charge of your encounter with him, regardless of how that encounter turns out. If you're in this place, I'm thrilled. It took me a long time to get to a place of wanting more encounters with God. I still have moments when I ignore God, but they are less frequent now. Mostly this is because when I have sought experiences of God, the times of comfort and joy have far outweighed the times of challenge. Even as I write this, I know I am not being entirely accurate. I think it is more that my experience of God tends to have an undercurrent of joy and a sense of being loved. Even in times of challenge or change that I don't feel like I want, there is this joy or what the Apostle Paul calls the peace that passes understanding, from Philippians 4, verse 7. A big part of this undercurrent of joy has been sustained through the daily reading of Scripture and daily prayer. I think as well the kind of prayer and the method of reading the Bible matters. Each morning I pray, Holy Spirit, come and fill me with your joy, or something similar. Some simple prayer. I attempt to read the Bible slowly for understanding and encounter, and not to meet a goal. I struggle with the last one because I'm a goal-oriented person. I like to check off that I've read five chapters a day. But when I go for some time reading scripture without a goal of completion in mind, I find that in the reading I am simply more open to God and the peace that comes from experiencing his presence. In recent years, I have taken to prayer walking. During these times, I almost always pray questions and listen for God's answers. Usually the questions are something like, God, what do you want me to do? Or, what do you have in store for me? I try to keep these prayer times as relatively agendaless. less I resist asking about specific problems. I don't ask, God, what do you want me to do about X or Y? I try to allow God to direct me. The metaphor of walking is helpful here. Often I don't know the exact path I will go, but I trust. In the same way, I trust that God will show up and lead me in times of prayer. I don't always feel the presence of God in my prayer times, but since I became more consistent, I've encountered God's presence far more. Since I started Paying attention to letting go of my own agenda in scripture reading and prayer, I felt much more as though God is with me. Not all of these practices will work for you, and you may find some of your own, but in the end, we are talking about a relationship, and that is the way relationships are unique in every case. I say all this in the hope that you will know that God's presence in your life is possible and even desirable. Much of this book or these talks can be summed up by saying the way to let God be present is to try and get yourself out of the way. That isn't particularly practical, however. There are practical helps to experience in God's presence, but i found that most of them come down to establishing consistent daily and weekly patterns in what you regularly do to seek to connect with God. What is the place of daily prayer and scripture reading for you? What is the nature of your prayer? Do you spend time listening to God? I don't ask these questions to cause guilt for those times when you are not praying or reading the Bible consistently. Rather, I pray that you will be encouraged to seek God out. You may, like me, be someone who never really wanted an intimate relationship with God, but the reality is that there is a relationship, and it will look different for you than it does for others. You may not ever use words like longing for God's presence, but God is still showing up in your life. Will you lean in and listen? Will you leave fear behind and trust instead? Will you let God be present? Thanks for listening to me share these thoughts with you through a couple of talks Um, this has basically been me reading from my book, Let God Be Present. And uh, just thought this was a great way to share with you listeners who have been faithfully listening to the Spirituality for Normal People podcast, and uh, just wanted to share this book with you uh, so that you uh, you could hear it read by the author. If if you are interested in having a copy of the book, uh, you can of course get it at the Spirituality for Normal People website. So just head to that uh, website, spiritualityfornormalpeople.com slash books, and you can find Let God Be Present there. Uh, also Let God Be God there. And as new books uh, get written, they will get added to that page as well. And of course, if you're a regular listener, you will, uh, hear these, uh, hear about the books here on the podcast. So yeah, thanks again for listening to me share this book with you. And I really, I hope you found it helpful as well to start really thinking about where is God present in your life and the kinds of things that you might be able to do. And yeah, we talk a lot about this on this podcast so that's maybe another part of your weekly practice that could be here is, uh, is taking some of these in and getting new ideas for how to connect with God through some of the guests and the interviews that I do. So I hope you find that helpful as well. Uh, yeah, thanks for listening and hope you have a wonderful week. Take care.